A question asked courageously, answered honestly, and lived authentically can change your whole life. For me, that question was, how can I use what I have, what I love, and what I know to bless the lives of others? The School for Good Living and this podcast are one answer to that question. Hi, I'm Brian Miller. I know that the world can work for everyone, but that it won't until it works for you. I've created this to help you make the difference you were born to make. It's a series of conversations with thought leaders who are moving humanity forward. And in each episode, I explore their lives and the work they do. I also ask them to break down how they've gotten their books written, published, and read. This podcast is all about exploring the magic and mystery and sometimes the misery of the creative process. So if you have a mission, a message, and the motivation to share it, this podcast is for you. Welcome to the School for Good Living. Hello, my friends. Today, my guest is Natalie Molina Nino. Do you ever meet somebody who has a totally different perspective on life and spend enough time with them to have some of that make a difference for you? You know, I spent, I don't know, close to two hours talking to Natalie, and she was one of those people for me. We were introduced through a common friend we'd never met before, but I was interested to interview Natalie because she has some very different perspectives and experience in life from me. She's Latina, originally from Ecuador in South America, who came to the United States, raised here, learned English perfectly, spent time as the family's... Um, kind of interpreter in some ways and describes in this interview the experience of feeling like she didn't belong here, which is a common experience that many of my guests have shared, but decided that she belongs everywhere. And I love the the way that she just reframes, you know, an experience that's so common and so disempowering. Today, Natalie is an impact investor focused on making a catalytic impact on women in the world. A technologist and coder by training, she's a consummate entrepreneur and a storyteller at heart, passionate about telling the often untold stories of women changemakers. So Natalie's book, Leapfrog, The New Revolution for Women Entrepreneurs, is a book that she wrote following her own advice. I love this advice. She says, don't follow your passion. These cheesy cliches that come through in the Instagram feed that in reality are horrible advice for so many entrepreneurs, especially entrepreneurs that don't have health insurance or who maybe are women or of color or other things that in some real ways are disadvantages in our society, not having access to capital. So her advice is not follow your bliss. It's to start a business based on something that pisses you off, something that makes you angry, something you want to change. And that is exactly what she's done, becoming an impact investor, targeting high growth businesses that economically benefit women. She co-founded the Center for Women Entrepreneurs at Columbia University inside Barnard College. She says that so many of the things that are written about in business books or the popular business media in reality don't apply to many entrepreneurs, especially women and people of color. She today is the CEO and founder of Brava Investments. She's a serial entrepreneur, having launched her first tech startup at age 20. She now resides in New York City and has been featured on the Forbes 40 over 40. In this conversation, as with pretty much all of my conversations, we also explore her creative process, her writing process, and why she has pursued a vastly different array of things in her life and how they all weave together, which is interesting. Reminds me of that saying that life can only be made sense of looking backwards and maybe these things aren't so different after all. So 
I think, especially if you're interested in entrepreneurship, that you'll find something valuable in this interview. And my invitation is to listen, to see what's probably a different perspective from one that you've had before, or at least from many, many of my guests. So with that, please enjoy this conversation with Natalie Molina Nino. Natalie, welcome to the School for Good Living. Thank you. I have to say, I only heard about it recently, but I'm excited to be here. Tell me, what's life about? Period. That's the end of your question. <laughs> Let's just wow, start there. That's big. Uh, you know what I think life is about? I think life is about leaving this place a little bit better than we found it. Beautiful. It's like, uh, who's, that sounds like a Boy Scout. Is, that, is there somebody, there's a nature <laughs> group the, that says that, leave, right? no leave trace. No, yeah, but take, this is take only better. photographs. Leave only oh. footprints, take only photographs. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, that's funny. So. I don't think I had heard that before. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I think we have to leave, leave our mark, but done in hopefully a way that's incrementally better. Yeah. Well, I was going to jump to this later, but we're right here. Um, you talk about a question that Melissa Silverstein, founder of Women in Hollywood, likes to ask. What cave paintings will survive us and tell the world what we cared about and what we fought for? Mm. How do you like to answer this question? You know, I think that when it comes to those cave paintings, I want to know, I often say this when people ask me what sort of work I do or, or even what sort of investing I do. I say outcomes over optics. I think we spend too much time on optics and we don't focus enough on outcomes. But I will say this, that when it comes to this idea of what cave paintings are we leaving behind for people to remember us, I think that it's more than just outcomes, right? I think there has to be left with the future generations traces of how hard fought the progress was, right? Traces and even blueprints of how to build movements, of how to create change. Because I think that the mistake that we've made in the past is that in focusing too much on the end result, right, we are now left without some of the tools, right? And so when, thing, when we see progress regressing, when we see you know, so much forward movement start to feel like backwards movement. It would be amazing to have more of those blueprints, right? And I'm talking about more than just MLK and Gandhi, right? There are so many people, especially women, especially women of color who were a part of these movements who made forward movement possible and whose stories and, and more than just story stories, their tactics, their tools, all of the things that we desperately need now, right, have been erased. And I think that, to me, the cave paintings have to include not just legacy, progress, but also really clear insight into how it was done. Yeah. Well, you do a lot of different work, mm. right? You do many different things, and over yeah. the years you've done many things. Um, when somebody asks who you are and what you do, or mm. maybe somebody introduces you before a speech you give or something, how do you like to answer that question? Who are you and what do you do? 
I've settled on changes, not surprisingly, but I've really settled on this idea of being a force for catalytic change for women because I think that I love the idea of a catalyst. I love the idea of being that little ember that sets other fires off, right? Um, there is a tradition in my culture. I am um, Native American from South America, from the Andes. And I actually learned about it later in life. And I think that a lot of the Native American cultures have the same mythology, right? Which is this idea of, I think in North America, maybe it's the eagle iconography. In Latin America and South America, it's the condor, right? And the condor generation, which happens to be my age group, um, were the group that took flight and that tend to speak a lot of languages and have lived in a bunch of countries. And it's funny because I learned about all this after I had learned a bunch of languages and lived in a bunch of countries. Um, and you're like, hey, that's me. I, yeah. The, it's like the prophecy fulfilled. It's funny. Yeah. Somebody <laughs> was like, of course, you're such a condor. And I was like, what does that mean? And they kind of explain this mythology. And it, it ties to that thing that we all remember, right, when people thought it was the mythology was the end of times. What was it, like 2012? 2012. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it was just the end of the calendar and an era, right? And um but the condor generation was meant to be the generation that kind of laid the groundwork for what was to come. And so for me, this idea of being a catalyst is something I identify with deeply because if there's any truth to the idea of our generation being that condor generation, that, you know, generation that took kind of took one for the team in some respects, right? Because as exciting and sexy as it might seem to learn languages and live all over the world, it's a lonely prospect, right, uh, to do that. Um, and it's probably pretty aimless if you're not doing it with something in mind. And for me, it has always been with the idea of being a kind of bridge, right? And w w even before I understood that about the culture, right, as a kid, I was the bridge. I was the, the you know, the perfectly English-speaking kid in a family of immigrants who sometimes had to be the one that spoke on behalf of the family or talked to the customer service agent or, you know, navigated forms in a language that was foreign to everybody else, but that I understood better, right? I mean, a lot of the times immigrant kids, that first generation, you have to be that bridge into the new culture. And so whether I intended for that to be the case or not, I was acting as a catalyst or as a bridge, you know, from the, from the moment I was born, I would say. So what I'm hearing and what you're sharing is that although this was a role that to some degree you inherited, mm -hmm. that it's also one you've embraced, a hundred percent. I think you have no choice, right? I joke that when, and people fall in these two camps often, I think that when you are multicultural, you can fall under the paradigm of, I don't belong anywhere, right? Because I go, I go, for example, to Ecuador and my Ecuadorian family thinks I'm too quote unquote Americanized, right? Um, and here I'm everybody's sort of token Latina friend. And so why, why do they say that by the way, when they say you're too Americanized, what are they looking at when they say, Oh, that? so many things, so <laughs> many things. Um, I'm, I'm too aggressive. I, you know, I, I spout off feminist diatribes on a regular basis. <laughs> I make altar boy jokes among the Catholics. I mean, there are many, many things that I do to stand out and not intentionally. Right. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and it's great that you have the choice of either saying that means I belong nowhere, mm -hmm. right? Or it means, and this is the choice that I made, 
I belong everywhere. Yeah. You know, I have this cultural sort of agility to be able to fit in all these different places. And the same way that I grew up bi-culturally, mm-hmm. you know, that, that same muscle is the one that I exercise when I'm suddenly finding myself living in Mumbai or in Yokohama or in Madrid, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I guess to your point about you inherited something and you can decide to sort of, you know, make lemonade out of those lemons, I think yeah. that's part of what this is. It's like you can either take it and and be victimized by it or you can take it and make it your asset and in my case learning how to be a bridge early on i think is what was ultimately training for Mm -hmm. me now to be a true catalyst yeah yeah no i can see that and i think not everyone perceives that there's even a choice to Mm -hmm. embrace what you know has been inherited but this is something i hear a lot about people saying you know, I feel like an outsider. I feel like I don't belong. I feel like I haven't found my tribe, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm to the point that I'm starting to wonder if it's a universal human experience, mm. you know, regardless of culture or geography or time, you know, it seems to be a very common experience. It's an uncomfortable place, but I feel like that's where change happens, right? I mean, mm. I can't remember if it was a Einstein quote, but it was about how genius was defined. Uh, I'm not going to get the quote right, but the premise was that genius is defined by seeing the same thing that everybody sees, but seeing it differently, right? Mm. And I think that that's what the outsider's mindset is, right? You're forced yeah. to see things from a different perspective. And I think that that's where the goodness comes from. That's where innovation comes from. That's where progress and change comes from. It's not comfortable, but it's sort of what I think is needed um, mm. to do the sort of big, big work that has to be done right now. And speaking of that big work that mm. has to be done right now, um, your book, Leapfrog, mm. um, I understand is a part of the way that you're engaging in that work. Yeah. Right. So the, in the complete title, Leapfrog, the new revolution for women entrepreneurs. Yeah. Tell me, why did you write this book? Who did you write it for? And how did you want the world to be different because of it? So, I mean, there are a few different reasons. And I would say that the thing that probably motivated me throughout the whole process was I, like any entrepreneur, have consumed every business book out there, right? And what I realized is that as a woman, as a woman of color, as an immigrant kid, and as, frankly, part of the, I don't know, over 90% of American families that don't have, you know, $5,000 in their bank accounts growing up, right? This idea that is so often doled out, or these ideas Mm -hmm. that are often, you know, pushed out, by business media didn't apply to me. Um, so that chapter about raising your friends and family around like, what, like who are these friends and family? You know, when you're growing up in LA among immigrant families, for example, um, there were so many things that I basically just kind of tossed and I got used to reading business books and just become accustomed to the idea that 95% of the content was not for me. Mm-hmm. And then filtering sort of all of that and finding the thing that did actually apply and finding that nugget and saying, okay, and being satisfied with the idea that 5% of the content being pushed out there maybe was relevant to me and the rest mm-hmm. was throwaway, right? Mm-hmm. And after decades of that, um, it, it, I think, became normalized. And I think that collectively it's become normalized. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, I think that, you know, when I left tech, I left tech after 15 years deep in the world of tech, 
pretty burnt out, um, deciding I wanted to pay it forward. And I co-founded the Center for Women Entrepreneurs at Columbia University that sits inside of Barnard, the women's college, mainly because I wanted to pay it forward. I wanted to have the next generation of women entrepreneurs to have it a little easier than I had it. And in getting to know their stories and in sort of relating to how that new generation is coming up, I started to see that the same experiences were just being replicated again and again. And it was in watching and almost seeing myself in them Mm -hmm. that it hit me that that's not okay. What were some of the experiences that you see or what are they? Yeah. You know, obviously lack of access to capital. Mm -hmm. Um, One of my favorite stories that I don't know if I mentioned in the book, but I definitely include her in the book is Catherine Minshew from The Muse, who went through Y Combinator and went through an inordinately painful process to raise her first seed round. And one of the many, many stories sort of from that experience was a time when she was in the typical meeting with the 12 angry men, you know, pitching her company and They got to the Q&A part of her pitch and they started to ask her questions. And one guy raised his hand and said to the two female founders, have you considered adding a male founder to add some legitimacy to your venture? Wow. And it was like, not, this is not 20 years ago. This was a couple years ago. And not only was he fully confident that that was an acceptable question to ask, but not a single one of his colleagues elbowed him and said, dude, what are you just saying? What did yeah. you just say? Yeah. Right? It was just totally fine. And in seeing how normalized that was, you know, she did the only thing that she could do in that situation, which is say, uh, thank you for your input. Uh, next question, right? Like, what are you yeah. going to do? You're not right. in a position of power there. Um, but she's thankfully gone out, you know, and publicly talked about these stories. And so I just realized that we had been putting up with the scraps for too long. And I wanted to write a book where this business of 5% of it may be as relevant to you is not the case anymore. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and then when I started to look at the numbers, when I realized that women were starting more companies than men, that eight out of every 10 of those companies started by women or started by a woman of color, I started to realize, holy shit, like we're the majority. 95% of books should be relative and, you know, relevant to our experience because we actually represent the majority of the innovation and sort of the new entrepreneurial activity in this country. And, and instead, we're still putting up with the, the scraps. Yeah. It's sounding to me like mainstream, like media. I mean, if you look at film and television, mm-hmm. that so much of it is this hetero, male, white, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. kind of. And that's not a surprise. Not at all representative of who's buying of who's buying all the theater tickets. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There's so this is not um yeah, it's not particularly surprising to me, but it is the first time that I'm really becoming aware that oh hey, that phenomenon is happening in business writing, you know, entrepreneurship oh, yeah. discussions yeah. as well. But here it is. And it's it's pervasive, right? I think about just today I was scrolling through Instagram and I found no fewer than I think three or four of these follow your passion, follow your bliss, and everything will magically resolve itself. And women are getting fed these lines. You know, women who are struggling to pay their rent and don't have health insurance. And it's like, no, no, do not follow your bliss. Start a company that solves a problem. Yeah. Right. And then you're more likely to actually have that company succeed. You know, I joke and I'm like, what if your passion is ponies? What are you going to do? Start a company about pony? Like, 
you have children to feed, you have rent to pay, you have a family to support, please throw away the follow your bliss and everything will magically resolve itself. That's for people with trust funds. And the majority of American women do not have that sort of a safety net. And we need to be giving them advice that's actually relevant to them and things that are real case studies, you know, that don't hide the origin story that is actually about privilege and safety nets and all sorts of things that are that are totally fine, but just not representative of the majority's experience, right? Yeah. Well, that stat that you just said about, if I understood, eight of eight of every ten business being started. So most businesses in the U.S. are being started by women. By women. And eight out of every ten of those is started by a woman of color. I had no idea. That's amazing. And it's funny because even in the nonprofit sector, right, which which I often take issue with. You hear and watch this sort of narrative of like, we're going to empower these black and brown women and we're going to teach them to be entrepreneurial and we're going to give them the tool. And it's like, well, hang on a second. (laughs) They are the single most entrepreneurial people in this country. We need to be taking cues from them. And what we need to be doing is taking the obstacles out from their way Right. And mm-hmm. these business loans we're not giving them mm-hmm. and these, you know, double standards about how both capital and resources and influence and media and so many things that help a business get up off the ground um, that they're not getting access to. What we need to do is sort of just unleash all of these things and just remove obstacles, which is ultimately, I think, what the book was designed to do. Right. Yeah. Well, and the title. Tell me, what does Leapfrog mean to you? Mm. It's very personal, even though it's a term that, you know, is deeply entrenched in the tech world. A friend of mine actually recently sent me a transcript from a speech that JFK gave um, during the race to the moon, right? And about how we need to leapfrog um, technology and science in order to get to these big, big goals like getting to the moon. And so it's a, it's a you know, not a new term, but the way that I'm using it is that I'm, is I'm saying, okay, so in South America, for example, in Ecuador, I remember seeing a farmer who never had a landline in his home suddenly walking around with two smartphones in his pockets. And he was using WhatsApp and he was asking me to pay him on Zoom. I mean, just from one generation to the next, less than a generation, right? From no landline to two smartphones. And I thought, that's what we need, right? When the World Economic Forum says it's going to take 170 years for women to get to gender parity, we cannot follow the usual path to progress. We have to leapfrog the same way that we aspire for, for example, the developing world to leapfrog technology. We need women to leapfrog over and across all of these sort of standard, well-trodden paths towards progress and multi-generational wealth and all mm. the things that take sometimes decades to happen. We have to equip them with the kind of tools that say, you know what, we're not going to wait 10, 20 years for this to happen. We're going to see this happen not just within your lifetime, but, you know, within the next five to 10 years, right? And I think that's the thing is anybody with power, influence, and capital got there because they took shortcuts unapologetically, right? Mm -hmm. Whether they were conscious of that Mm -hmm. or they were unconscious of that. They just happened to have been born in the right zip code, right? And I think that there's no shame in taking shortcuts, right? Mm -hmm. Everyone who has made any progress has done it. And I think that there's a there's a there's work to be done there, both on the part of we who support people mm-hmm. in progressing and in creating sort of just societies, but there's also work to be done within our own communities of color. So for me, one of the things that I observed 
is that in naming the book, I wasn't able to use the word shortcut as much as like I hang my head on it a lot. And it was because we tested the word and it turns out that the word uh, tests really poorly around my target audience, which is mainly women, entrepreneurial women and especially women of color. And it turns out that the word that they most equate with the word shortcut was cheating, hmm. which was really disappointing to me, right? Because it tells me that we have this collective trauma that we're so concerned with being mistaken for the affirmative action candidate or the token this, or, you know, you only got there because of the color of your skin or your last name or whatever else, and not being deserving of the things that we fight and work so hard for, that we are so adamant about following the rules exactly to the T, you know? Yeah. That we don't want to be accused of skipping steps, of cheating. Yeah. And we forget how ubiquitous shortcuts are. And how important they are to anyone's success. Yeah. Right? And so somehow we've gotten these two things, we've conflated them. Um, and so that's a really big part of not just the, the work of the book, but I would say my work in general, which is that we need to unapologetically embrace the shortcut and take a cue from those people who have taken them before us, right? Yeah. And I'm not going to malign people with trust funds. I'm going to take note of how they succeeded and make sure that the people who don't have access to those blueprints, get them, right? Yeah. Well, and, and that seems to be exactly what the book is, right? 50 hacks, 50 hacks that you... Shortcuts, really. Shortcuts but. that you've collected <laughs> from your own experience, yeah. decades, over decades of being an entrepreneur, and then a lifetime of learning mm. and putting them between two covers in, in, the way that you, in, in the way that you have. Tell me... And telling the story of 63 other people people who did it too. Cause I, yeah. I kind of don't want people to just take my word for it. Right. I want yeah. people to see models mm. that they can copy and replicate and be inspired by. Right? Yeah. And that's part of, for me, what makes the book very readable mm. is that it is both your voice as kind of a narrator that might not be the best term for it, but you're a guide yeah, in the, totally. through the book. And then mm -hmm. you're showing us the examples of, of a wide variety of people who've applied, you know, these principles that, that you're pointing to in the book. Tell me, how did you decide how to structure the book? Mm. Like, why are they in the order they're in? How did you decide what to include? And what did you leave out that mm. now you wish you'd put in or mm. maybe was a question at the time and you decided to leave out? Yeah. That last question is a tough one. Um, so, how I'm going to start with, you said structure, um, sequence, sequence. So the structure was actually a moment of genius on the part of my agent. Hmm. So it's funny. And I want to say if this was maybe 2015, maybe we, I had been working with an agent who I am the organizer of TEDx Barnard. We have had people like Barbara Corcoran, and all sorts of amazing speakers. And she was a book agent in New York City from the Black Agency, which uh, for those people who are creatives, they will recognize the Black Agency because they represented the woman who wrote The Artist's Way, for example. Oh, Julia a Cameron. Book, yes, yeah. a book that I love. And also just the business of that book is interesting to me, right? Mm. I don't know that that book is a household name, mm. um, but among creatives... It's very well known, yeah. You're not in a, the creative world without knowing that, right? And that's what I love. I love it when a book is, it knows its audience. It is perceived as a Bible among that 
audience, yeah. right? And it may have never made it to the New York Times bestseller list, or it may not made it to be a household name, but among the people for whom it was built, mm-hmm. it's a tome, right? Yeah. And and that's what I really wanted. And so they understood that sort of long tail of books, and I really wanted that for this book. And um, so Joy Tatella is my agent, and she looked at the – she is the one who encouraged me to even think about writing a book. And she said – to me when she finally saw the sort of end result of, you know, much, much work with between me and my co-writer, she said, you know, the content's fine. Structurally, though, this will be confused with a whole lot of other books that will be perceived as women's empowerment or, you know, just too, too similar to a number of things that she had seen sold in that last year that mm-hmm. weren't even on shelves yet. And she said, you're going to have to differentiate this book. And I think that one way to do that is by structure. And so the folks from 37 Signals had written a book called Rework. Yes. Jason Freed and mm-hmm. David Hannemeyer Hansen. Yeah. 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 I am an old coder. So that's, I knew them from like my geek, you know, days. And she mentioned them to me and I was like, I know exactly who they are. And then she mentioned the book and I didn't know the book. She sent it to me. I remember the day that I opened it up and I was like, this is it. If this is the structure she wants me to use, mm-hmm. First of all, I don't care about structure. As long as the content is there and Mm. and I'm true, you know, and authentic in what I'm communicating, structure is irrelevant. And if she says that this is a structure that that will sell, I love it. Yeah. I love it because I'm thinking of my audience being busy, working moms who have companies, the most demanding thing that you can do while you're a job, you know, Mm. while while you're a mom especially. Um, But it also gives you the flexibility. So many women leave corporate to be entrepreneurs where they're working twice as hard as they did in the corporate environment. Yeah. But they're doing it on their own schedule, on their own terms. And I thought, you know, that woman is going to have a really hard time finding a long stretch of time to read a book. I love the idea that she could read a three-page hack Mm -hmm. or a chapter, right? That it could be done out of order, that she could read, you know, from middle to end to back to the beginning, and that's fine. Yeah, and not only read it, but understand it digest it, apply it totally immediately. Yeah. And so I, lo- as soon as I saw that book, I was like, this is it. I mm-hmm. love this. And if she's saying that this is going to give her uh, a tool and give, you know, make it easier for her to sell the book even better. Sure. So it was really her, you know, mm-hmm. and it was me just being open and realizing mm-hmm. that what mattered to me is that the content be authentic mm-hmm. and I'm totally open to structuring it and shaping it. However, you know, the marketers think is best. Yeah. Well, this is one thing I'm always curious about with books that have co-authors mm. is how fully do you feel your voice came through in the final product and how how fully do you feel this book is an expression of your original intention? Yeah. Uh, first of all, let me just say Sarah Grace is a genius. Um, she has worked on so many books as a ghostwriter. I imagine I probably can't name them because she's a ghostwriter. She has been. Um, it was important to me that if we were going to be writing a book on this subject matter that my co-writer and collaborator be named. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the time, she hadn't ever been named, mm-hmm. even though she had worked on – she has an amazing body of work. And that was really important to me. Um, Why was that important to you? Because I would feel like a hypocrite writing mm-hmm. a book to support women entrepreneurs and then not naming the woman that was going to help me shape the thing mm-hmm. right? and not giving her credit and not yeah. giving her sort of her due. Um I, you know, trying to live values whenever, yeah. <laughs> whenever we can. Well, and that's a big deal, right? Because my understanding is the nature of things like royalties mm-hmm. gets shaped by whether somebody's a named author, whether it's a 
co-authorship, whether it's a with, mm-hmm. whether it's just a ghostwriter, that oh, kind yes. of thing. So it has to be the font has to be a certain percentage size right. and all these different. Yeah. In fairness, this was my book, mm-hmm. and I pushed the woman who was so helpful in writing the um, proposal and mm-hmm. shaping it. Um, and so, in in a way, Sarah sort of came after in the business negotiations, but not in my mind. Like Sarah mm-hmm. was an essential part of this book from the beginning. Mm-hmm. And so as the book deal came together, I then added her into my contract with her, right? Mm. And then it was my um, mechanics to say, we're going to share some of the royalties. But the book and the, you know, everything related to the agent, the negotiation with Random House, it was all with me. Mm-hmm. And then I brought her in. Mm-hmm. Every single t- step of the way, I brought her in, right? Because I knew that I couldn't do this without her. I had just launched my last company, um, only an insane person decides to write a book when they're also launching a company, but <laughs> yeah. I am obviously an insane person, but I'm an insane person who knows how to ask for help. And, and Sarah was so critical to that. I love the work that she's done in the past. Um, but in terms of my voice, you know, what Sarah did is she attended a bunch of my talks mm. and, and we're, we're friends. We've known each other for years, but in the process of putting this project together, she attended talks she even came to a summer camp that I have every summer. I teach high school girls between their, uh, their rising juniors and rising seniors. And we have a summer camp that I built, which was basically the summer camp that I wish that I had gone to when I was a kid. Wow. Um, she came and she watched me teach. And you do it every year? Every summer. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah, we're about to do our eighth. And girls come from all over the world. Um, and she watched me. So she watched me in the classroom. She watched me give speeches. Um, she was such a student of my voice and she delivered so far above that what ended up happening at the very tail end of this process is that she captured my voice, my speaking voice, so well mm-hmm. that I thought it was too folksy and too, you know, my writing voice yeah. is a little different than my speaking voice, right? Right, You're a little more casual when you're speaking. And then yeah. when I myself am writing my words and putting them on the page, I'm going to tighten it up a little. Right? Yeah, a little I more formal. Totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so what was funny is that the end result, maybe not the end result, the almost end result was a book that was entirely in my spoken voice. And I was wow. like, okay, that's too much. That's interesting. <laughs> so I ended up spending a whole editing process just kind of reining in what ended up being my own voice, but just tightening it up, right? Um, because she captured it so well, but it, but it, but what she captured was my spoken voice. Wow. Um, so there's no question in my mind. I mean, we were, we collaborated a ton. She's a brilliant business person. And so she had all sorts of ideas that she contributed. Even a couple of the people that are in the book mm-hmm. um, are actually her people. Because mm-hmm. we needed examples of somebody who would illustrate this point really well. Mm-hmm. And while the vast majority of them are all my people, my friends, my colleagues, there were a couple where we struggled to find the perfect example. And she was like, I know somebody. And, you know. Wow. Um, but for the most part, it was definitely... Um, very true to my original vision, my my experiences. Um, there was a time where she pushed back on one thing, mm. and it was, I cannot remember what chapter it is, but she did it for good reason. And it was a time when, after a series of edits and after a series of reviews, a moment where we, you know, when you're speaking a book, mm-hmm. which is what we did, mm-hmm. two hours a day for mm-hmm. seven months, we recorded those voice conversations and then we transcribed them and then she somehow architected that into a book. Um, which is why I say Sarah is a genius. Uh, but one of the things that happened a lot is that because she and I are so 
aligned, I would just say, et cetera, et cetera, sometimes, <laughs> knowing that she would fill the blanks, <laughs> right? And do it well. And there was one time where the filling of the blank was uh, the idea of places where you can find resources. And it was like your local Better, Better Business Bureau, your SBA, your local, you know, um, church, why, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> um, and church ended up put, I said, et cetera, et cetera. And church ended up being what got put in. <laughs> and when, after a number of different reviews, I think the copy edit, maybe even the legal review, it came back to me and I noticed and saw, right, where some of those blanks had been filled. And I noticed that the spot where I might have said place of worship mm-hmm. was actually filled by the word church. And I immediately called it out and I was like, Sarah, why did we choose church? There were a lot of different things we could have chosen. Why would, why would we pick Christianity mm-hmm. as the default? And she said immediately, she goes, you're totally right. Nobody caught that. It should have said place of worship. And I said, well... But a number of people reviewed it, and nobody raised a flag. Nobody thought it was problematic. I, I, that's interesting to me. Mm-hmm. And she was like, listen, I get it. I you know, understand your point. It should have been a place of worship. And I was like, no. It was like this itch I couldn't scratch. I was like, you know, the fact that no one found that problematic talks about that universality, right, yeah. of one mm-hmm. paradigm. And I thought, what if we just do the exact same thing that you and everyone else had no problem with? Right? We pick one. Mm-hmm. But we just pick a different one. What if we pick synagogue? Yeah. Or what if at a time in a country where we have a Muslim ban, what if we pick mosque? Mm-hmm. Right. And Sarah, I think, rightly point, pushed back and said, I get what you're doing here. Yeah. I'm aligned with your values. Mm-hmm. But that's going to draw needless attention to something that is not the point of the book. Mm. Right? It's going to potentially even... How do you feel about the sirens? I'm fine. Yeah. I'm fine. <laughs> it's uh, it's going to potentially even create and stir up controversy and problems that are not at all in service to what you're trying to do. Right? Mm-hmm. It's going to be distracting, she said. Mm-hmm. And I think that she was potentially right. There was a risk that that's exactly what would happen. Mm. But I also feel like Living in a country with a political climate like this one, these are tiny little battles. Mm. And if it ended up creating controversy, if Mm. I ended up having to deal with some sort of an aftermath, that's a small price to pay Mm. for a woman who was raised Catholic in a predominantly Christian society that Mm. has decided to ban Muslims, right? Like my price of a little bit of controversy and a little bit of heat is nothing compared to what a Muslim American family has to deal with today. Sure. Right. And so I thought this is a tiny, tiny gesture Mm -hmm. and a potentially meaningful one. No one had a problem with us picking one when it was church. So there shouldn't be a problem when we pick mosque. And so that was one moment where we had a little bit of tension and I totally understand her reasoning for pushing back. Mm -hmm. Um, But it was also the only moment where I exerted my veto power. Every other part of the process was fully collaborative. Interesting. And I would say that was a collaboration too. It was just, it was the only time where I think she really disagreed. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and in the end, you know, we, we that one time realized, okay, well, if a call needs to be made, then it needs to be Natalie's call. And so I made it. Yeah. yeah. No, that, that's interesting. And hearing you share about that, I mean, to me, like so many things come up just listening to you share your experience, including the magic of the creative process. Mm. 
where there often is a leader who has the idea for the project or has this concept of, you know, how he or she wants the world to be different or contributed to. And you start off on this, but you've invited someone else in, Yeah, you know, and then to think about the, I would say generosity, and that might not be the right word, but of another person to spend two hours a day, you know, speaking to understand, capture, organize another person's thoughts and collaborate, and then to, you know, make them coherent and all this. It's like, it's really a beautiful thing. And, and I think there is a way in which it is, it is like magic, you know, when it all comes together. Completely. I mean, what we ended up doing was lumping and there was a part where there were, there was a time where there were four sections. There was a time when there were six. We were trying to make sense of like what clumps make sense. And Mm -hmm. then we finally nailed down these five sections where it felt cohesive. It felt like these things all sort of aligned with each other. And then we had no names Mm -hmm. and we struggled to figure out what these five sections get called. And there were so many people consulted and it was really, really tough. And it was like down to the wire. And finally, one day, as always happens, I think, with the creative process in the shower. Yeah. It's amazing how water, right? Showers <laughs> in particular, that? sometimes baths, sometimes swimming. Yeah, but yeah. It, there's something there. Something there. I was in the shower one day and I said, I want whatever it is, the same way that I, I insisted that it come out as a paperback. Mm-hmm. Again, because I'm envisioning this busy woman that I want to read in small chunks, right? Um, To be able to roll up this not precious thing and stick it in her diaper bag and maybe it's going to get some poop on it and that's not the end of the world. Everything will be fine, right? And I want it versus the shiny, hardback, you know, precious, like be careful sort of thing. Um, I had said all along that I wanted it to be simple. I wanted these category headings to not feel heady, mm-hmm. right? And then I really started to think of what are these like easy, simple, but also familiar expressions or maybe even figures of speech. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, ready, set, go, ready, set, go. That's it. Mm-hmm. It's ready, set, go. And then what I loved about the fact that we had five sections mm-hmm. is that there was never a moment where I thought, well, how do we cram these five sections into three? It was more of ready, set, go. And the whole point of the book is we don't stop where everyone else stops. Mm. We don't leave you at the point of where you've launched your company and then leave you on on your own, Yeah. right? We go that first and second step further by saying, ready, set, go, then fund, then grow. Mm. Um, and it just felt so simple and like all, I think, beautiful things, um, so obvious Yeah. in some ways. Um, and yeah, that was like right, right towards the end. That's awesome. Mm. That's, that's really, that's really cool. And, you know, I'm thinking of people who are listening to this now and about how I think there are, there are people who are in the creative process mm. right now. They might feel stuck. They might feel they're struggling, you know, and if, if nothing else, you know, I hope they take away this, like some encouragement mm. from the idea of a, it's a process, yeah. you know, B, you're not alone. You can ask for help. Mm. I think many people get stuck even being willing to ask for help. Other people are willing to ask for help, but then they maybe don't allow themselves to receive it. Right. 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 So your example of doing both, mm. you know, that, and then, and then uh, part of what is in there for me too, is this idea that there was some urgency with a deadline mm-hmm. that gave, that helped, you know, create whatever a creative pressure yep. that ultimately was resolved. 
And then here's a really beautiful example of when you knew your audience, you know, you knew you wanted it in paperback, you know, which you didn't mention this, but of course a paperback is also less expensive, right? I've gotten messages and it like, it chokes me up. I had a woman send me an Instagram message saying, because I haven't really talked about this much Mm -hmm. and certainly hadn't, you know, when I first launched it and saying, you know, the idea that this book is less than $20 Mm -hmm. is material for me and my family's budget. And I just want you to know that I see it. I noticed it and I appreciated it. And it was just like, I got that message and I got all chucked up and I thought, yeah, that's, that's exactly why we did it. Yeah. That's really cool. Because when we put these things out into the world, we never know, you know, who will receive it, the impact it will have. And, uh, I imagine that must be really gratifying to to hear that. Yeah. Yeah. Because that's one woman who, you know, took the time to tell me and how many others, you know, don't have the time to be <laughs> writing an author and finding her Instagram account and sending yeah. her a message. But I, I so appreciated it. Like yeah. It hid so many nerves for me. Right? That's cool. And it reminded me that, that this is when you know your audience and you're working with people who are experts in their fields, right? Be it. Sarah, my co-writer, be it Random House, the publisher, Tarsha Perigee, be it, you know, Joy, my agent, they all had amazing things to contribute. But the Mm. thing I knew, right, the thing that I just had to sort of keep as my true north is, is who I was talking to. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, let me ask a few things um, as I read your book that stood out to me and I wanted to know more about. Um, One of them is, and you talk about this early but you're Abuelita, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? And what she taught you. Yeah. Will you talk a little bit about that here? Yeah. Gosh. Uh, by the way, I realized there was one answer, one question I didn't answer, and that's what I left out. Yes. Thank um, you. And I would say to segue into this question, Abuelita stories. Mm. There were so many. Um, there were so, so many that that I think I left out because they were more life advice, you know? Um, and the challenge with a book like this is making sure that even the things that are fundamentally um, personal and emotional, um, you want them to be, I wanted it to be a hardworking book. I wanted it to immediately map to something that people could make actionable. Um, and I also am sensitive to the idea that the book might not be taken as seriously if it was perceived as self-help. Mm-hmm. So that was another reason, mm-hmm. right? Um, as a, as a woman, as a writer, I want to believe that you know people are evolving and things are progressing. But the reality is, is there are some constraints that we just have to work within, mm-hmm. right? Even as an investor, um, I recently had a conversation and uh, we were comparing the names of people's theses and sectors, right? And so Deval Patrick at Bain Capital, love him and his work. Um, one of his verticals is uh, health and wellness, mm-hmm. right? And nobody thinks twice about that. You know, this is this is a, a very well-respected former governor, right, who is now investing with Bain Capital, and people think health and wellness, and they think, you know, a man is investing in health and wellness. How progressive of him, right? A woman invests in health and wellness, and people assume it's curly Q fonts and yoga pants and things that the investment world might perceive as fluffy, mm-hmm. right? So I don't call it that. I call it healthcare. And people are like, wow, that's a little dry. That's a little... You know what? I have to work within the constraints of our culture. Mm. And Debel Patrick might get a pat on the back for investing in health and wellness. I will be taken less seriously if I call it that. Right? Mm. 
And so I think that there was some of that that gave me pause where there were stories about my grandmother that I really wanted to include. And I thought, I'm going to just include the ones that are directly relevant to something that I can make actionable in a business context, right? Which maybe my second or my third book will have a little more leeway there. But um, what I learned to go back to your last question is um, I learned a lot from my grandmother and the story in the opening of the book is one that I've noticed that I've gotten so much feedback on. Um, to your point, you never know how things are going to land. Mm-hmm. That story has landed um, with a lot of people in really meaningful ways. I have had women come up to me with tears in their eyes mm-hmm. and say, this story reminds me of my grandmother's. And the story is essentially a story of a time that my grandmother, who worked 24-7, um, doing odd jobs. She was a seamstress in the sweatshops of Los Angeles and she would bring her work home or she would just do side hustle work, making wedding gowns and quinceanera dresses for the local community. Um, And then she made beautiful things, you know, and I was a little kid and I watched my grandmother make beautiful things. And one day I asked her to teach me to sew and you would have thought that I had insulted her in some massive (laughs) way because she stopped everything she was doing and she looked at me and she said, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to teach you to sew. I'm never going to teach you to sew. And in fact, I don't even think that's the word she used. I think she said, you will never learn to sew. So it was like, wow. not only am I not going to teach you, but it's kind of like over my dead body. Wow. Are you going to learn to sew? Which again, I didn't understand. All I saw was good, honorable work and work with her hands. Uh, and how old were you at this time? I was probably like seven or eight. Mm-hmm. You know, pretty innocent question on my part. Mm-hmm. You see somebody making beautiful things, you say, can you teach me to do the same, right? But for my grandmother, it meant so much more than that. And she said, you know, you will never learn to sew because you will never make a living using your hands, Mm. right? Because for her, having to work as a seamstress and having to work herself to the bone was a necessity. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she was damned if I was going to have to do the same thing, right? Mm. And it was definitely my job to propel the family forward and to do what ultimately amounts to a leapfrog, mm. right? Like I was going to propel our family forward and it was not going to be by handing, having her hand down, you know, her profession. Mm. I was going to skip steps, right? And I was going to end up in rooms that she would never dream of being in, yeah. right? And I was going to accomplish things that were beyond her wildest dreams and I have. And I think that what she said to me in that moment, which I think that a lot of, you know, our elders sometimes do is she, she lit a fire under me and she made it seem non-optional, right? Like this is your job. Yeah. Um, And we're all banking on you doing this. Right. And I think going back to our earlier conversation, right. It's, I could see that as a burden Mm -hmm. and a weight And I think it can be for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, I could frame it as just, this is my job. This is why I'm here. Right. Um, And, and I think I, you know, I've, I was fortunate enough to frame it that way because I saw the joy that comes from that sacrifice. Right. Because my grandmother is what made all of our lives possible. Mm -hmm. Right. And so she could have seen that as a burden. She could have seen that as an, as a job, but Mm -hmm. instead she created a whole life. Right. And all of our lives out of it. She wove something really beautiful out of that responsibility. Yeah. 
That that is that is amazing. Um, and my understanding is that your family then went on to own some of the factories, factories yeah. right? So this yeah. was uh, in steps, yeah. and you've, like you've said, taken and built on that success and that sacrifice in some in some pretty remarkable ways. So one of the the twists and turns of your life journey that might not your grandma might not have expected, you probably didn't expect, but ultimately you followed was this decision to go study playwriting. <laughs> Yeah, right? that's a very nice way of saying it. Most people thought I had fallen and bumped my head. So tell tell me, what was that decision about? It was a lot less crazy than it sounds, right? Because on paper, it sounds like the engineer who, you know, who studied environmental engineering, who went into tech for 15 years, ran away with the theater circus and decided to go and do playwriting, right, at Columbia. Um, all of those things are true. But the reason I did it is because I and I, I I advise women and anyone really looking at what their path needs to look like mm-hmm. to do this. And that was that I tried to look at the through line of all of the moments of success and happiness. And especially, you know, professionally, sort of what was my superpower? Mm-hmm. You know, and those are difficult conversations to have with oneself. Yeah, they can be. For sure. Totally, right? Because one of the things that I had to realize is that my superpower was not being an engineer. I, you know, I pride myself in being a coder and being analytical, but you know what? The reality is, is I was constantly throughout my entire career surrounded by people who were better at it than I was, Mm. right? So then how did I thrive? Well, right? if you're not going to be an engineer, can't you at least be a doctor? <laughs> right. Or a lawyer. <laughs> yeah. These are the options when you're an immigrant kid. Yes. Um, and, and so, you know, they're not easy realizations or things to sort of be open to, right? Which is, okay, that thing that I so strongly identify, I'm kind of mediocre at it, it turns out. Right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Fine. Next. Right? So what is, what is the connecting thread? What is the thing that makes me happiest? And what are the moments fueled by when I've been successful. And I realized that in in my case, it was storytelling. Mm -hmm. And I was that engineer when you were surrounded by engineers who could code from here to the moon, but couldn't present in front of 50 people. Mm -hmm. Um, I was the one who could, right? I was the one who had that fluidity with language, with explaining deep, deep tech to laymen, Mm -hmm. um, which is ultimately storytelling. And so I thought when I left tech, if I'm going to do anything on a sabbatical i'm not wired to be the kind of person who goes to a beach and hangs out for a year and you know recharges my batteries that way my way of recharging my batteries and becoming sort of whole again was to occupy myself with something radically different and i thought you know storytelling has always been my gift Mm -hmm. but i was a halfway decent storyteller surrounded by mediocre storytellers, right? So I was kind of a big fish in a little pond, right? Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, among, you know, engineers, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I was a good storyteller, but plop me into the middle of a room with real storytellers, right? Mm -hmm. The best in the world. Mm -hmm. And I would very quickly realize my limitations. Mm -hmm. And so I thought that's probably about the scariest thing that I could do is just to parachute myself into a room with the best storytellers in the world, and so that's what I did. And thankfully, Columbia has a sense of humor and they let me in <laughs> um, because they definitely had no academic reason to let me in. And next thing you know, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm in the playwriting program at Columbia and I'm studying alongside 
some of the best in the world. And in the summer of 2013, I find myself um, nominated by Columbia to be the playwright in residence at this thing that for people who are in the theater world, they might recognize, but for those in the business world, it's basically an incubator, right? Uh, or an accelerator for, for the great American play, musical, film. And it's uh, started by the New York, the owner organization called New York Stage and Film, and it's called Powerhouse. And it happens every summer upstate in Poughkeepsie at Vassar. They take over campus and they invite people to bring their unfinished works. Hmm. Um, and so that summer, Stevie, Steve Martin and Edie Brickell were there working on their musical. And all these other amazing people were there. And then about halfway through my time there as the playwright in residence, this guy shows up who I don't recognize, who's super antisocial, who's not talking to anybody. He's in the corner with his headsets banging away at what seems to be something very urgent. He didn't talk to any of us. And it turns out I found out later it was because his cast was arriving in a few days. Wow. And he hadn't finished writing the first act yet. Oh. And so he was scrambling to, you know, get something finished so that when the performers arrived, they had something to rehearse. And it was Lin-Manuel. Wow. And he was working on what was then called Hamilton Mixtape. Um, and so my friends call that my um, Forrest Gump years, where I just <laughs> randomly landed in the strangest places with the most interesting people in the world. And, you know, it was probably the best thing that I could have done to sharpen my business skills is to spend a few years working on being a storyteller. Yeah, that that's really remarkable because obviously you came back to the business world, but was that your intent when you went to study playwriting or did you think you were following a different path entirely? That's a great question. Um, I have to say as a, as a type A personality and as a Latina whose family need you to have a plan you know, not never mind a five-year plan. Like you know, a multi-tiered twenty-year plan is the minimum. <laughs> um, the biggest challenge for me in deciding to go back to school and to study playwriting was to embrace the words "I don't know," mm. because whether it was my business colleagues who all thought that I had again fallen on my head and run away with the theater circus to even the people who were in my family and my friends who just worried about me, who just said, you know, you were kind of at the top of your game and now you're studying theater. Like what the hell's going on? Right. What's your plan? And I was very tempted to come up with some answer that would at least appease them mm -hmm. because I think that we're human. We want to please people. You know, we, we don't necessarily thrive in ambiguity at all times. Mm -hmm. And that was the challenge for me was to really be okay with being at that lunch with that friend who cared about me and who was concerned and just be comfortable saying, I don't know. I don't have a plan because I really didn't. Mm. I knew that storytelling was if I had a superpower, that was as close to it as I had gotten. If I was going to strengthen, strengthen that superpower, I knew that hanging out with New York theater people was the way and the place to do it. But it was really just kind of a pursuit of something that I knew I was already good at, that I could be better at, mm. without necessarily knowing where I was going to land. Um, and I, I, I always want to be honest when I tell that story, because I think that it's very easy, and I think we all do this, that once there's the end of the circuitous path mm. has arrived, or you've mm. sort of landed someplace meaningful, going back and telling the story, no matter how circuitous the past path was, 
it's always sort of a neat and tidy story. Right. And people believe that you sort of knew where you were going to land. And I had no idea where I was going to land. And that's okay. And that's part of the process, right? That's like that saying, is it Kierkegaard? I don't know who it's attributed to, but about life can only be lived forward, but made sense of looking back. Mm-hmm. And and then what Steve Jobs says about connecting the dots, looking back. So yeah, it's, we can construct this really tidy narrative, you know, after the fact, but having the courage or the willingness to follow, you know, what interests you or what you feel called to do or what scares you. Yeah. Um, I really admire that. And, and one of the things that I love in what I'm hearing you share here is that you were aware of your strengths or you were aware of your gifts and you wanted to go refine those. Mm. Where I think for many people in our society, a tendency, and maybe this comes from schooling or the way we parent, I don't know, is to become aware of our deficiencies and attempt to compensate for those mm-hmm. as opposed to recognizing what we're good at or what we enjoy and then going all in on that. Yep. So yep. plus what I love in, in what I'm hearing you share is to me, this does seem a little bit, this might be, this might be a little dramatic, but it still seems this way. It's a little bit shamanic too, where you go mm. out, you know, you leave the familiar, you leave the comfortable, the known, you go out, you have an experience, you learn something, and then you bring it back and you share it with others. It's, I think yeah. it's really cool. It's funny that you say that because my thesis, um, in order to graduate, right, um, at Columbia, I had to write a play. Um, it was actually a first act of a play that was then performed in a workshop setting. Um, I had some of the most amazing people support me through that process. But one of the things that I found as I was writing it was that I was falling into conventions that I had already experienced. Mm -hmm. And so this is going to be one of those moments where I'm terrible with names and it's going to show the guy who uh, Sorkin writer for the West wing, Aaron Sorkin. Yes. Aaron Sorkin. I was writing a political drama that people kept complimenting and saying that it reminded them of the West Wing. Mm. And every time they would say that, intending to compliment me, my eyes would roll back as far as they possibly can in my face because that is not what I was going for. I'm not trying yeah. to copy Aaron Sorkin, right? And so in order to blow that story up mm. and to do something that was uniquely mine and somehow resist the temptation to follow something that I had already experienced, I ended up drawing from some experiences that I had had in the Amazon rainforest uh, with plant medicine. And I spent nearly two years studying ayahuasca as a scholar, Mm. which anybody who listens to this and knows me will probably wonder if I'm telling the truth, but it's true. (laughs) I've actually never tried ayahuasca. But you've studied Um, it. I studied it for two years. Scholarly research, you know, it's, it was, it was pretty hilarious. And then I introduced the concept into the play Mm. which was like throwing a grenade into the middle of a play. It no longer got accused of being in any way similar to the West Wing. Let's be super clear. <laughs> yeah. Because then this otherwise political drama turned into more of a shamanic experience. And it was mm. a funny way to end my time at Columbia studying theater because I started off as a businesswoman learning to study playwriting. Mm. And I ended up, really tapping into the things that it turns out I cared most about, which was fundamentally the culture from which I come, Mm -hmm. right? Things like ayahuasca from the Amazon and Ecuador where I had lived. Um, And then also the thematic, the repetitive thematic um, structure of women in power and exploring it. Mm -hmm. Um, Ultimately, 
that's everything that I wrote while I was at Columbia was some sort of an exercise in working out these ideas of, of women in power in mm. that relationship. Right. So interesting. Not where I thought I was going to land. Yeah. Coming well, out of tech. Well, then I think of that saying too, there are no straight lines in nature, right? In life, very seldom do we draw a path from here to there and get there in an enjoyable way. We mm -hmm. might willpower, struggle or whatever, but now I, I'm really, I'm really touched by, by your willingness again to, to do this. And it doesn't surprise me given some of the other things you share about in the book, including one about, you talk about trusting your intuition at mm. one point and going and having an exam that helps you become aware. Mm. Uh, will you talk a little bit about, about that experience? And then, and then I actually want to ask you from that about intuition. Yeah, sure. I will say this. Part of the reason I talk about that is because it's not, I don't, I don't want to use the word natural. It doesn't come easily mm -hmm. as someone who is very well trained to be analytical. Right. right. Um, the same way that I think that I, learned from the experiences of my family in manufacturing and in the sweatshops of Los Angeles and tried to go to clear the opposite thing, right? Mm -hmm. Where I'm like, let me go into tech. Let me work in an office setting. Let me, you know, uh, never be in the same place for more than two consecutive weeks. Like, let me do something that seems polar opposite to what I grew up with. Um, I think in some ways my forcing myself to become an incredibly analytic person was in some ways possibly a reaction mm. to South American magical realism, right? Mm. And a grandma who took you as a baby to see the witch doctor because she thought you had evil eye and all these things that I was, you know, fully convinced were ridiculous. Well, did you? <laughs> <laughs> well, if you asked her, she's passed. But if you had asked her, she would have told you, well, did you get better? And of course I did. Yeah. <laughs> so that's all she cared about. Um, but... You know, I think that my analytical nature was in some ways a rebellion, you know, to that. Mm -hmm. And so it's not easy. Um, and it doesn't necessarily come easily for me to say, hey, follow your intuition, even though I think that that, you know, is increasingly something that you hear. For me personally, it doesn't come come easily. And so it was an interesting thing. Yeah, to be uh, 20 years old in Boulder, Colorado, um, having started my very first, you know, tech company, um, having the pressure of both being in school and running a technology company in 1996 when, you know, tech startups were just beginning to really be a thing as we know them now. Um, and to find the really inconvenient piece of information, which was that I had cervical cancer, right? And to have a doctor tell me that I didn't need to have this exam because I had just had my annual a few months earlier and I wasn't due, right? Um, it's very easy to be like, well, you know, here's somebody f coming from a place of authority. You're mm -hmm. supposed to have these annual exams. I'm coming in like six months in. I'm not due. It was very easy to just sort of take no for an answer mm -hmm. and be polite. Mm -hmm. um, and it was maybe, you know, my first example of sort of advocating for, for myself and, and maybe also as much as I tried to wean my trust in my intuition out by being an analytical engineer, mm -hmm. right, those are the moments where you realize that the thing that you were raised around and to be, and maybe even just your nature mm -hmm. is strong enough that it somehow manages to overpower all the other tendencies. And I, I found myself pushing back and telling the doctor, I don't care that I'm not due for my annual exam. I need to have the exam again. Um, 
and she did. And sure enough, I had, I had cervical cancer. And so, um, you know, that stubbornness ultimately saved me. Um, and I go back to that story a lot, maybe not enough because I do value these analytic qualities Mm -hmm. that have served me so well in my career. Um, but it's telling the story of my grandmother in a business book, right? It's, it's those sorts of things that are ultimately allow me to maybe coexist with these two things where you can benefit from all of the wonderful things that come from being analytical mm-hmm. and being structured and being all the things that maybe the modern business world needs you to be. Mm-hmm. And yet also still be rooted in those things that are fundamentally very human. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and in my case, very, very aligned with, with my culture. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I never thought about it and it's funny that you frame the question this way, but I guess that ultimately I wrote a business book that has a pretty healthy dose of little bits of intuition sprinkled throughout. And I don't know that I did that intentionally. I think that I did that as a way of just putting the human flavor and my story into things. And I don't know how good you are. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I don't know that I realized that my story so many times, right. Threaded into it is, is these stories of, of moments of intuition. Yeah. Um, yeah, if you had asked me what's your experience with intuition, I would immediately rattle off stories of my mom and my grandmother and my aunties. I don't think that I would think of myself. What is intuition? What do you think it is? How do you describe it? So, God, it's so funny that you're bringing all these things up for me. Uh, last year, um, my tia Nimva, my aunt, my great aunt, so she's the youngest uh, sister of my grandmother's generation. She was diagnosed with cancer and it was right around Thanksgiving. It was right after Thanksgiving. I had just, so maybe this was two years ago now. Um, I had just spent the Thanksgiving break at my place in Ecuador in the Andes locked up working on like the final edits of my book. Um, I left and then like a few days after I left, I got the news that my aunt had gotten sick um, and she had cancer and it was thoroughly inconvenient for me to a few days after having left Ecuador even consider coming back. And what I was told is that she would have months, not years, that it had metastasized, that it was definitely a tough situation. There was still chance, there was still hope, mm. but you know, I should definitely plan on coming home for the holidays. And so I set out to make plans to come back for the Christmas holiday. And then there was something in me somewhere that said, I don't want to see her sick. It's really inconvenient, but I feel like I need to go. And I stopped and dropped everything that I was doing. And literally, I don't know, a few days after I had just returned, I went back to Ecuador. Um, And while I was there, she took a turn for the worse And we ended up putting her into hospice. And though she was sick, she was joking. She was pleased to see me. She was my aunt. She was all the things that I knew my aunt to be. And I got to be there when nobody else was there because everybody else had planned on coming home for the holidays. We have family scattered all over the world. And, you know, especially for the family living here in the U.S., everybody was like, okay, the ending sick. We're all coming home for the holidays. And as a result, there weren't very many people there except for my family members who live and exist with her every day. And she didn't make it to Christmas. Mm. Um, And there are a lot of people in my family that regret 
not following my lead. And all I can think of is that's what intuition is. It's that momentary battle for me. Maybe for some people it's not a battle. For me it is. For me it's here's this really inconvenient thing that you you maybe could do. I don't know why it popped into my head, but it's inconvenient. It is nonsensical. It is a little alarmist. Everybody's saying that she's going to be okay. And here you're acting like, you know, the, you know, whatever three fire alarm has been sounded. And there was even that concern that like the perception that people might think that she's sicker than she is. If you drop everything and go back, Natalie, you're just creating concern for people. Right. And so, and then I started to whittle down. I'm like, okay, so the reasons I'm not doing this is because it's A, inconvenient, B, going to be perceived poorly by others possibly. Mm-hmm. And basically all these things that I know to be BS, <laughs> yeah. I'm going to not do something because it's inconvenient or because people are perceived it the wrong way. And I thought, you know, none of those reasons are valid. And what I'm left with is just a sense that I should do this. And my aunt has been there for me in incredibly inconvenient times and has bent over backwards to be an amazing human and a support for me. The least that I could do is be a little inconvenience to go and see her. And so I didn't know, I can't tell you that like, I knew she wasn't going to last through Christmas. Like it was just, I needed to see her right away. Mm. Um, and I was the only family member who doesn't live in Ecuador who got to spend that last bit of time with her. And I think about those moments and, um, I guess that's how I would define intuition is it's creating a pattern from, to your point, that moment where I thought that I needed to have my annual exam done early to that moment when I thought I needed to see my aunt for no, you know, rational reason. Um, Mm. It's those moments and it's remembering them. And I think it's maybe tying them together and trying to see what's similar about those moments. Right. And I have to say super grateful that you even brought this up because I think that that exercise, it's easy to forget and even to connect these things. I wouldn't Mm. have, I wouldn't have connected those things today or, you know, I haven't before. Yeah. Well, and I think, I think there's a lot of people listening. I mean, first of all, I think there's a lot in life we don't understand, right? And there's a lot that as much as our society has been blessed by our tendency toward materialism, empiricism, you know, being able to thinking, yeah, like all of this cause and effect, very rational, linear, logical, like all of this, that that's in and of itself, although it can bring material progress and success, it doesn't necessarily bring fulfillment satisfaction, you know, sense of connection or meaning and this kind of thing. And so that is, again, part of what I've been impressed by in, in reading some of what you share in your book is, is about how you do listen to mm. this aspect of yourself. You do not only listen, but you follow. And I think it's something that many people want to do, but they either feel they don't know how, or they don't have the courage, you know? And so that's this next question then about, okay, now we've heard a couple of amazing examples of where you have cultivated you followed your intuition and been i would say rewarded Mm. for it you know what a blessing yeah how can others more i don't know the word is more easily or more fully follow or trust their own intuition what do you what do you say about that you're either gonna laugh or love my response or or maybe hate it um when i think of what gave me the room to stand up to a doctor and say, we need to do this exam again, mm-hmm. right? Or the ability to be inconvenienced and get back on a plane and go back to Ecuador, right? Um, 
I, in both cases, I see privilege mm. and I see basic needs being met, right? And so part of why and part of why I think it seems very tactical and it seems very pragmatic, but it's so much heavier than that for me. When I talk about my theory of change and how I have a more systems thinking approach to how we invest and create multi-generational wealth and just like basic, mm. basic things like taking people out of survival mode. Part of my motivation isn't just because we need to have a society of people who can afford healthcare, who can afford roofs over their heads and education and all these basic things, but it's because I see that because those basic needs were met for me, mm-hmm. I had the privilege and, and, and the benefit of being able to exist at that level, mm. right, where I could have the space. Mm-hmm to be concerned and to push for that second exam or to be able to afford that trip back to Ecuador immediately afterwards. Right. And I think that if we want people to exist at that level and why wouldn't we want that for everyone? Yeah. Right. We need to make sure that we are clearing their minds and their anxieties Mm -hmm. about just the basic things that we need for survival. And I think that, you know, I wish that I could give sort of a formula, but I think that so many people are in survival mode mm-hmm. that what an amazing thing to see an entire generation of people or entire communities of people raised and pulled out of survival mode to be able to exist on that plane. Yeah. Right? That's the real end game. Yeah. I think. That, that's a different planet. I mean, to even begin to imagine that. Yeah. It's, you know, I'm... I think I mentioned this to you in email, but I had the opportunity yesterday to visit Charity Water and and Mm. interview Scott there. And one of the little on the boards that gave stats and messages Mm -hmm. talked about the fact that there are more people on the planet today with cell phones than toilets. I thought that, Mm. I mean, that's shocking. I'm not even sure what to make of that because, you know, that they can afford a cell phone, but not a toilet and what the implications of that are. But at any rate, I, I, I agree. And yeah, I could go, I could go sideways on this for a while too, because I think about this utopia, which as we know, utopias don't exist. Right. But we also know that the way we're living as a global society is not working, you know, and whether it's in the develop developing world where people do lack something as basic as a toilet or clean water or here in the developed world where rates of suicide, you know, are still rising or, and addiction people to like clean water. Yeah, or still clean water right here in America, <laughs> mm-hmm. which is really remarkable. So there's no yeah, anyway, I could I could go sideways on that for a while. But in the interest of time, <laughs> I I want to I want to move us to the what I started calling the enlightening lightning round. Ooh. Yeah. So All if, right. you're, if um, you're open to that. Of course I am. And then I've got and I didn't there were a few other questions I didn't ask about your dog. I understand your dog passed. Yeah. Sorry to hear that. Thank you for thank you for um, mentioning it. Yeah, I, it, that was another moment, right, where the vets said that we had um, weeks, and it turns out we had days. And um, in a moment, just like the one with my aunt, um, you know, a friend of mine has a beautiful house by the lake by a lake in uh, in the Catskills, um, and I just hadn't thought of it. Like I I hadn't thought that it was so urgent. I was focusing on taking care of her and the vet appointments and the drugs that she was taking and all these different things. Um, 
And then the weekend flew by. And then it was Sunday, and it was Sunday night, and my friend said, why don't you go to the Catskills and spend time at the house next weekend? And I was like, you know, that's a great idea, first of all. And second of all, I don't think I'm going to wait till next weekend. I think I'm going to take her now. Mm. And I made a reservation for a car uh, that night, and first thing Monday morning, we hopped in that car, and we went to the Catskills, and we spent three days with her frolicking on, you know, in the hills of the Pocip- of you know, I keep wanting to say Poughkeepsie for some reason of the Catskills, and um, she was starting to lose mobility, mm. um, but she gave it you know one last hurrah and she had a blast and I was all by myself with my dog in a beautiful house by a lake for three days. Wow! And then last Monday we lost her, um, and it was you know if I had believed right the analytical mind mm-hmm. and the tests and the X rays and everything that said that she had weeks. I would have missed that. Mm-hmm. Well, good for you. Mm. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm sorry about that. I know. Is it a chow? Yeah. Chow chow? Yeah. Third chow. Special. I'll never have another kind of dog. I know you should never say never, but they're snooty. They're independent. They're stubborn. I mean, there's <laughs> what? what is there not to love? Right? Beautiful. Well, and I didn't ask about the motorcycle or the accident <laughs> or the trade you made of coding for a car and all this. There's a lot of... But people can read the book, yeah, right? Exactly. People can read the book. So... Let me let me shift to a few questions that um, people might find interesting and valuable. Sure. Also, hopefully they've found everything we've talked about interesting and valuable. There's a little change of pace. So, okay. The first question here invites you to please complete the following sentence with something other than a box of chocolates. Okay. Life is like a... Salsa dance. Okay. Next question. What's something at which you wish you were better? I wish that I was better at being vulnerable. Hmm. All right. Next question. If you were required, I'm going to ask you to get over the horror of this question, first of all. <laughs> <Uh-oh>. <laughs> but if you were required every day for the rest of your life to wear a T-shirt with a slogan on it, or a phrase, or a saying, or a quote, or a quip, what would the shirt say? It would say, you are the source of your own supply. Mm-hmm. Number four, what book, other than your own, have you gifted or recommended most often? <laughs> <laughs> I just gifted you one of my two, and I have to say one of my two favorites, otherwise my friend Sam Cass will kill me. Uh, cookbooks, uh, which is La Latina, written by uh, Chef Grace Ramirez. Beautiful book, by it's the way. Gorgeous. It's such a great. You can picture the book on the shelf of your grandmother's kitchen, and it, it's just stunning. Um, but I will say this: the other, the the book that La Latina's, you know, and Sam Cass's book, Eat a Little Better, have only been around for for a little bit. The book that, if I look back, um, I've recommended more than any other book is uh, Twyla Tharp's The Creative Habit. Mm, why it, that book? Uh, it's, you know, she she didn't write it to be a business book, but I think it's an essential business book and it basically demystifies creativity. Mm -hmm. Um, it frames it as a muscle, Mm -hmm. not a miracle, like Mm -hmm. lightning striking, which Mm -hmm. I think is a lot of the times how people perceive creativity. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, my favorite line from her book is that she talks about how if creativity was just something that comes only when you're inspired, how the hell would I show up every morning at eight o'clock to a room to rehearse with, you know, 
40 ballet dancers Mm -hmm. every day at eight o'clock like clockwork if I'm not inspired. I don't have the option of just on Tuesday not feeling inspired. Like creativity shows up every day at eight o'clock and I make sure that it does because I exercise that muscle. And she talks about having rituals and all sorts of things that Mm. help her develop that muscle. And I think that, you know, you can't be successful in business without being creative, whether you're doing it as an entrepreneur or you're doing it in a corporate setting Mm. or you're an artist and your business is your art, right? Or you're an athlete and your business is your career. You cannot do it and do it well. And in my opinion, do it and have fun Mm -hmm. without creativity. And I think for all of us, Mm. sometimes the batteries run out, right? And I think Mm. that what I love about Twyla Tharp's book is it kind of teaches you how, how to recharge. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I love that. And that's something that reminds me too of what um, Elizabeth Gilbert mm-hmm. talks about in Big Magic. Yep. Um, about just that the, what is it? The muse, mm-hmm. the, that the muse finds you at your writing desk at five in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> that's where the muse finds you. And all you have to do is show up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's pretty beautiful. And then somebody that I just interviewed for this show today, um, just this morning, mm. I love his statement. Steve Pavlina says, I don't wait for inspiration. I ask for it. Uh, and and then he asks for it by, you know, putting himself in action. Yep. And it's like, that's really yeah. cool. Yeah. That's like the artist's way, right? Showing up every morning and doing your daily pages. Yeah. Yeah. I did that for almost five years. Wow. Didn't miss a day. Totally changed my life. Yeah. Really? Yeah. It was awesome. Wow. Wow. So um, this, by the way, so you say one of my two all-time favorite books for entrepreneurs. You mentioned in your book, Twyla Tharp's The Creative Habit, which you're mentioning. What's the other one? E-Myth Revisited. Oh, yes. This is a classic. Love, obsessed with that book, especially like the bigger the ego, the more somebody thinks they're a special snowflake and their business is so unique, the more I must have them read this book because <laughs> they're offended by the idea that I'm giving them a book about franchises, mm-hmm. right? It feels like the most base in their minds, right? Mm-hmm. Version of a business. And yet I quote Kat Cole, who is one of my dearest friends in the world. She was uh, the CEO of Cinnabon and now she's the president of the parent company that owns Cinnabon and Auntie Anne's and Carvel's and recently bought Jamba Juice among others. Um, And Kat talks about franchises as a way of being in business for yourself, but not by yourself, Hmm. which I love. Yeah. Right. Um, And, you know, franchises get a bad rap because people immediately think McDonald's, but a franchise can be anything, right? It can be gyms. It can be tutoring classes. It can be any number of, of different things. It's not what you're selling. It's the fact that you're basically building a business that entrepreneurs can can essentially, right, um, replicate. Yeah. Um, And what I love about that book is that it takes stories of people who were flailing at their businesses Mm -hmm. and it shows you through basically consulting engagements or case studies, right, how they not just recovered but then figured out how to thrive. And it's very human, right? It's about people's disappointment getting in the way of really seeing the big vision or it's about really tactical things being Mm -hmm. able to get you unstuck right Mm -hmm. so it's a combination of deeply human problems and also really pragmatic practical things i love it it's a huge inspiration for me always yeah that book comes up a lot Mm, does it for sure okay next question is about travel 
Mm. So you travel a lot. Mm-hmm. What's one travel hack, meaning something you do or maybe something you take with you when you travel to make your travel less painful or more enjoyable? Well, today's a crappy time to ask me that question. But the answer to that for the last 23 years has been my dog. Mm-hmm. So dogs, I've had three dogs consecutively. Um, and that that's it. You know, that's the thing that sort of has kept me sane every morning, taking a hike, you know, here or wherever I happen to be. Um, and then also clearing my schedule. So before 10 a.m., I don't do business. Um, I'm not a morning person. <laughs> um, so it's really a service I'm doing for everyone else as well. Um, <laughs> and just being really strict about how that's my, that's my hiking with my dog time or that's my meditation time. Um, that's the time that I get to make sure that my head's on straight. I like that. Mm. I'm trying to think what my life would look like if I didn't do any kind of business before 10 a.m. <laughs> yeah. But okay. Um, what's one thing you've started or stopped doing in order to live or age well? Ooh. Uh, I've started sleeping more. You'll live longer. Uh, and hopefully smarter. Stay smart. Um, yeah. So that's one thing that I have. And I have the good fortune of having absolutely no problem sleeping. It's just that if you clocked the amount of sleep that I actually got during, for example, my dot-com years and all of that, um, there just wasn't – I didn't make room and time for it. Um, but thankfully, I'm not an insomniac. I don't have any of those things that sometimes inhibit people from from sleeping. It was just a choice. Mm-hmm. I chose not to make room for it in my life. And now I am choosing to make room. Um, and then something that I have stopped doing – is I have stopped doing things to be polite. I'll give you one example. In 2009, I stopped drinking. I'm not an alcoholic. I never drank excessively. But I realized one day when I took inventory, I started to meditate quite a bit in 2009, and that's part of what inspired me. When I took inventory of the number of alcoholic drinks that I had any given week, 90% of them were done entirely to keep someone company and be polite. Meaning, I never liked wine. I'm so sorry because I'm about to alienate half, if not 90% of the people that listen to this podcast. But I never liked wine. It's just, it was not my thing. Never liked the taste of it. But you better believe I was happy having some white wine at lunch with my clients, you know, or at dinner or at the, you know, happy hour meeting that I managed to squeeze in with somebody who was really hard to, you know, get time with. Of course, I'm going to have a cocktail with you, right? Mm. I did a lot of the drinking that I was doing only to be polite. And I realized... I'm not going to do that. Um, And so I took inventory of things like that. Drinking was just one. Mm -hmm. Uh, But there were a lot of things that I was doing in my life to be polite, to not stand out, to not create waves. Mm -hmm. Um, And I stopped. And it's made for a pretty interesting (laughs) life. People think of me as pretty opinionated now. I think people thought of me as more diplomatic and nice and, you know, all of those things that people want you to be, um, I think I'm probably considered less those things. Mm -hmm. Now I'm perhaps considered a little, little more blunt, a little less nice. I would say strong. (laughs) I hope so. I hope that's the case. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's really clear to me that that's, that's one, that's a litmus test, right? Am I doing Mm -hmm. this because I really want to do this or am I doing this to be nice? Yeah. I deal with that for sure. Well, it sounds like something probably happened in 2009, but, um, (laughs) <laughs> in the interest of time, I know we're actually at the time that we'd set. No, you okay to keep going yeah, for yeah, a totally. while longer? Okay. Yeah. So I might come back to that, but 
because interest, interestingly for me, I find it interesting. I actually stopped drinking almost coincidentally, like almost at the same time I started meditating as well. Interesting. This was about six, seven years ago. And for me, it was, I just find my life works better when I don't drink. Mm. Like I'm less of a jerk. Mm. To be honest, I think I'm impulsive enough and I have enough of a melancholy side. I think I probably would have ended my life. In, if you had kept drinking? Yeah, I'm mm-hmm. surprised at how many how many suicides are under the influence, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. just because of That's that surprising. lowers tolerance. I'd never really thought about it, but looking back at my experience, I could totally see that. Yeah. And again, it's not like a moral thing. It's not a religious thing. I'm fine if other people drink and, and that. But I'll it's even just... drink every once in a while. Someone will celebrate something. I'll have a drink. Again, because I'm, I have the good fortune of not being an alcoholic. And so mm. I, I, have, I have the luxury of being able to do that. But it's funny about your meditation coincidence because what I found was that I was really getting in the zone. My practice was developing. I felt good about my daily meditations. And then what I found was in the evening – it almost felt like I had made progress in the morning. And then in the evening when I had alcohol, I was reversing all of the good work from the morning Interesting. right? where I had done all of this work to be present. Mm-hmm. And then I was waiting to the evening to then numb myself and be the opposite of present. Yeah. Right. It's interesting. And, and, and then on the other exploration of this conversation too, is this whole thing about why is alcohol legal and other substances aren't, right? And then we know if you look in that, you can find a whole a whole history of race and class and, and things like this. But yeah. it's, it's probably for another podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but an interesting one. Yeah. yeah. I, I advise a company called uh, The People's Dispensary that is um, four women and I think one queer man. Um, and the women are all women of color. And it it makes me happy to know that that's a thing because I think that the cannabis industry is not doing the sort of reparations that it needed to do with the precise community that, you know, the drug laws most oppressed. Yeah. Well, and even in Denver to decriminalize, you know, psilocybin. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, you know, I something's know. going on in the Rocky Mountains. <laughs> <laughs> totally. So, totally. okay. Um, number seven. What's one thing you wish every American knew? And by American, we're talking about people in the U.S., correct? Yes. Okay. That's a pet peeve of mine. Uh, what would, how would you say? Every citizen of the United States? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So let's, I'll reframe the question. And down, <laughs> don't edit that out. Leave that in. So here's the reframe, rephrased question. What's one thing you wish every citizen of the United States knew? Spanish. Hmm. I actually really also wish every American knew at least a second language, just any second language. Yeah, I know. Me too. Except I'm, I'm going to just go ahead and show the bias. No, I love it. <laughs> I say Spanish. But yeah. No, I agree. It would be any, any second language because I think that what you learn with languages is so much more than just the language. You learn a culture. You learn a different, you know, worldview um you know there are reasons that certain languages don't exist in certain languages because it's connect it's connected to values it's connected to how how that culture sees the world uh yeah i think it forces people to to think very differently and to maybe even rewire their brains you know but yeah i i think there are many u.s citizens that forget that almost all of us are immigrants Mm. you know or were at some point right yeah so okay um, what is the best relationship advice you've ever received and successfully applied? Oh, I love that one because it was the one 
story that I left out of the book that was advice from my grandmother uh, because I didn't think it had a place in the book, but it has such a huge place in my life. My grandmother um, was one of those people that you could bring any broken animal to and she would fix it. Right? Wow, what a <laughs> wonderful would, human. Yeah, I would do that all the time as a little kid. And one time I brought her a pigeon with a broken wing. And my grandmother, of course, set out to fix it. And the pigeon took many, many weeks to recover and finally ended up being fine and started to fly around the house. And my grandmother sat me down and explained to me that it was time to release the pigeon. And I was like, but the pigeon is ours. And she's like, the pigeon is not ours. <laughs> we have to release the pigeon because the pigeon has a home. And the home is out in the wild of Los Angeles. <laughs> um, and... This you know, pigeon has to get back to its overpass. Yes. It's, it probably has a family. It probably has, you know, kids. Who knows? And she told me this whole story and I wasn't buying it. And I had all these like, you know, logical arguments for why like the pigeon is now used to living with us and the pigeon likes our food and the pigeon, you know. And finally, I appealed to her softer side and I said, but I love the pigeon. <laughs> and my grandmother said, people and pigeons, <laughs> whatever she meant, you know, but um, they're like water and you don't hold them by squeezing them. Otherwise they slip through your fingers. Mm -hmm. You hold them the way that you hold water with your hands cupped open. Um, and I don't know why, but like little Natalie somehow got that. Um, and so we walked over to the porch and she handed me the pigeon and I put all my strength into basically throwing the pigeon up into the air and watching her do this huge, huge, beautiful flight, you know, sort of around these palm trees that were near her house and go incredibly far where we could barely see her and then proceed to turn around mm. and jet right between us, past us, and back into the kitchen where her food was. <laughs> <laughs> so we had a pet pigeon for years. Oh, my gosh. That is not how I thought that story ended. <laughs> she did not go away. Wow. She decided she wanted to stay. There's so many takeaways for relationships from that story. Yep. <laughs> you know? Yep. That is great. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. <laughs> of course. That's fun. Course. What's the most useful thing you've ever learned about money? Hmm. Or maybe the most important thing. Sure. The most useful thing actually that I learned, and it's funny because it was so recent, and I think that on some level maybe I understood it, but I didn't understand it until I heard it truly articulated by Nellie Galan, who wrote this book called, um, Oh my gosh, Nelly Galan. Uh, the Spanish version is called Adelante, and in English, it's called Self Made. Hmm. And the reason she called it Self Made is because she had access to mountains of research through a series of business relationships she has with a couple of big corporates that said to her that the studies, similar to my study around the word shortcut, mm -hmm. how it didn't test well with my target audience, the word entrepreneur doesn't test well among women and people of color. Well, first of all, it's just so damn hard to spell. First, <laughs> yeah, and it's and it's lofty, and it's French, I and mean. it's French, <laughs> damn French. <laughs> um, I think that what 
we learned is that, you know, that woman who cleans seven houses but doesn't see herself as the CEO of a janitorial company, right? She might not see herself as an entrepreneur, but if you ask her, are you self-made? Mm-hmm. Hell yeah, she's self-made. Right? Yeah. And so anyway, what I learned from her, from Nellie and from her book, Self-Made, is that massive segments of our population, myself and my family included growing up, saw an income as the way to create legacy and and multi-generational wealth and didn't realize that all incomes do, no matter how big they are, Mm -hmm. right, is help you survive. Mm -hmm. And what really creates a legacy and the ability to make change within your own family or your community or even bigger is this idea of investing, Mm -hmm. right? Of that idea of setting stuff aside that's not functioning as a day-to-day in the day-to-day economics of your life, right? Right. Um, and it's only that stuff that you set aside and that you truly don't transact with, but you invest with. Yeah. That's, if you care about leaving a legacy for your grandkids, if you care about leaving a legacy in the world, if you care about making change, like it's about moving away from the transactional and into the investing mindset. And I think that, you know, for, for the finance world, for even for that matter, you know, families with wealth, that's the thing that they've learned. Mm. And I just think that there are larger segments of the population than any of us realize mm-hmm. who have not learned that fundamental, simple concept. Yeah. Um, even like I said, I thought I had learned it. And then it wasn't really until I saw example after example in, in Nellie's book and, and in sort of getting to know her that, you know, we were talking to large populations of women who are blue collar workers or who were in the manufacturing world as entrepreneurs and who hadn't gotten that concept, right? They were working mm-hmm. to survive. They were, the, yeah. even their businesses yeah. were working to survive. Um, and it was just that one reframe that changed everything yeah. right? for, for a lot of people. Um, and I think, yeah, that's probably the thing. This, this is a horrible lightning rod. I'm this is a very long winded <laughs> no. answer. No, that's a great, it's a great, and, I probably don't set that up as effectively as I could because the lightning is intended to be. Yeah. I'm going to have to rethink the whole thing <laughs> <laughs> because it's intended to be. I ask a short question. You can answer however oh, long good. you want, okay. but, okay. Good. but then I get so interested in your responses because even on that one, like I am also, I'm interested in how many people don't seem to perceive, you know, to your point that there is a difference between your income and your net worth. Right. And just in the same way that I think a lot of people don't see the difference between revenue and profit of a yep. business, but the difference is as different as night and day yep. of both of those. Yep. So now that's, that's pretty big. Okay. So that, Oh, and I do want to say this here. I like to put this at the end of that enlightening lightning round to make sure that I say it. Um, two things first, um, as an expression of gratitude to you for mm-hmm. making time to come and share your experience and your wisdom with me and everyone listening. Um, one thing I've done is I've gone on Kiva.org mm. and I've made a $100 microloan on your behalf to a woman in Ecuador named, no. named Pamela who will use this money to buy pigs and potatoes and feed and carrots. Oh, that's amazing. So, yeah. So. Kiva, near and dear to my heart. Um, and I know the founder just joined Aspiration Bank that my partner has invested in. Um, so it's a, awesome. it's a small world. Yeah. yeah. Thank Ki- you. Kiva is pretty, pretty remarkable. Yeah. And then the other thing that I want to do here to make sure I don't leave it until the very end, although we're almost 
almost at the end, no worries. is if people want to connect with you or people want to learn more from you, what would you have them do? I would have them go uh, to leapfroghacks.com. Um, it is both the book website, but as well as uh, my page is there. And so all of my socials are there. Um, as well as this is my favorite part of the page is there is a section that allows you to see all of the people that are profiled in the book um, mm-hmm. and also to see what hack they're in um, and to get a sense of who this group of misfits is and sort of you know what they stand for and what they're working on. Uh, most of them have allowed me to put their LinkedIn connections there so that people can actually conceivably interact with all the people in the book. That's a cool idea. Mm. I haven't heard of anybody doing that before. Mm. Yeah, that's really neat. Well, good. Okay, that's awesome. So the last the last few questions I have are more specifically related to the creative and and also maybe a couple about the marketing and promotion yeah. of the book. Because I know it's pretty common for somebody who wants to write a book to think that the finish line is completing the manuscript or even <laughs> getting it published. But as we know, in many ways, that's really just the starting line. Yeah. Um, I do. I want to go back to the thing earlier about the playwriting and the storytelling, mm-hmm. just to ask if there's a piece of insight that you've learned about how to effectively use story. Is there, I mean, I know you got a degree in this and you spent years, but is there like one thing that somebody listening could take away and apply when it comes to using storytelling effectively? Totally. And I would say the one thing, because it cascades into many, many others, but it's a, it's a, it's a mindset and it helps get you in the right mindset. And that is simply to remember that the brain is wired to remember stories. And so whenever you're tempted to anchor, there's nothing wrong with charts and graphs and all the analytical, analytical things that help us survive in business, but the best charts and the best graphs tell a story, right? And so I think that if we remember whether it's building our pitch, you know, uh, decks or standing in front of somebody for five minutes and telling, right, rattling off some data isn't what's going to get you the second meeting, right? Mm-hmm. Telling people a story that they're going to remember is ultimately what's going to do it for you. And so even in the most analytical situations with some CFO in a room somewhere, you will hear me say, what's the story? Right? Mm-hmm. And I think if people think that way, it opens up a lot of doors. Yeah. No, I agree. In fact, I was just listening to a podcast yesterday that was talking about the power of story. And I think we all know that mm-hmm. at some level. But the thing that opened my eyes in this podcast, it was Reed Hoffman's Masters mm-hmm. of Scale. And he was talking about how when you really get down to it, entire c- cultures have these origin stories, these myths. Yep. So whether it's our own life as an individual, whether it's the company that we started or we're a part of, or whether it's you know a religion or a whole culture. Yep. Stories are this inescapable, you know, aspect. So to learn them how to use them is is powerful. Yep. Yeah. It's like the water we swim in. Totally. I mean, even at the beginning of this conversation, you know, someone who doesn't fit in her home country, my I'm, I keep mentioning Ecuador. I'm half Colombian before my mother kills me. I'm half Colombian, half Ecuadorian. I just spent a lot of my childhood in Ecuador. Someone who felt like she didn't fit in her sort of ancestral home and didn't fit in Los Angeles, like. That's the makings of a troubled childhood and probably a, you know, a very troubled adult. Um, Mm -hmm. And it was a story that ultimately saved me, right? It was a reframing of my experience. And now Mm -hmm. even as an adult, right, identifying as a 
part of this condor generation. I mean, it's the stories aren't just how we sell things. It's how we survive, I think, and cope. Yeah, agreed. Well, and on that topic, um, I just read this book called The Body Keeps the Score about PTSD. Mm. And part of what the author says, who's an amazing, he's been in this world for like 40, 50 years, that he talks about one of the like phenomena that researchers have found is people with PTSD seem to have difficulty putting their experience into some kind of a narrative they can even understand or that empowers them. Mm-hmm. And it's like, that's interesting that as a part of healing, often that's so crucial to yeah. to becoming whole again. Mm. So anyway, kind of aside. No, I, I love that. And by the way, the reason I love that is because I have been saying for a while now that women live in a world that is not designed for us to thrive. The workplace is not designed for us to thrive. You know, business is not supporting us when 0.2% of all venture capital, for example, goes to women of color, the group that, as we discussed before, is the single most entrepreneurial group in the country. All of these things work against us, and we can see that as a disadvantage, or we can see the fact that we have to navigate these worlds that are not designed for us mm-hmm. and survive in those worlds. It makes us in some ways multilingual, multicultural. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think that we can either frame that as something that forces us to expend a bunch of energy in environments that were, we're not welcome, or we could, and, and it is that, that is true. It's not to take away the truth of that. But I think that in addition to that, it can also be how we collectively, mm-hmm. women in modern society, cultivate a superpower out of it. Right. Mm-hmm. It makes us more agile. It makes us people who can navigate all these different worlds, whether they be family, the workplace, politics, all these different places, um, against all odds, we manage to function within these frames that aren't really designed for us. And it gives us potentially strength. Yeah. Right. That more than any time, I think we really need. Yeah. Agreed. So, okay. Last couple questions and I, and I won't, but I really want to ask you about what the hell is going on with all this abortion stuff, <laughs> you know, but I'm going to keep it on the creative, right? Maybe yeah. that's part two along with the <laughs> psychedelics and other substances. <laughs> so but, many things. Okay. So the last questions that I'm putting my notebook down, this is really like coming down the stretch. So I know I want to ask a question about what you've learned that might help others successfully complete their creative project. Mm -hmm. So I want to ask something about that. Mm -hmm. And then I also want to ask about marketing and promotion, what you've learned as a creative. I don't know if you think of yourself exactly as a creative, but Mm -hmm. I do because you've written a book. (laughs) So maybe we start with that, the creative process. What's the question there? What have you learned that might be useful to others who are at the beginning of, or, or maybe feel stuck in the middle of their creative journey? Yeah. Uh, I also wrote some plays. (laughs) So yeah, I definitely consider myself a creative. I will say this, when it came to crunch time for the thesis at Columbia, and I had to finish that one final project, I had finished plenty of others before that, but when it was really like the pressure was on Mm -hmm. and uh, you have actors who are going to show up at a certain time to rehearse and do a thing and here you are and you're writing the pages and they're not even done yet and it's like oh you know that to me is the part that's tough about pressure when it's pressure you put on yourself that's one thing but when other people are expecting right or impacted by you um i i 
cheated a little. And I probably shouldn't say this on a podcast, but I ended up trying Adderall for the first time in my life. And it worked. I understand. What do you mean when you say it worked? It worked to help you focus. Be I'm not suggesting this, by the way. There's an end of the story. Trust okay. me, I'm not coming on your podcast <laughs> to tell everybody to get on Adderall. But here's what it did to me. Um, I know some people have different side effects and everything. For me, all it did is when you sit down for a five-hour sort of you know work stretch, mm-hmm. and out of that five hours, you have 45 minutes of being in the zone mm-hmm. where you are your smartest, your most creative, your most prolific, and it just goes and you're in the flow. Mm-hmm. What Adderall did for me is it gave me like eight hours of being in the zone. Right. So what's the downside of this? The downside is I used a drug and I realized that that's not sustainable. And so when it came time to writing the book, it was very tempting to be like, mm-hmm. I'm launch- I've launched my le- next company. Only a crazy person would also sell a book and be on deadline for a book and all these other things. Like the pressure was also on mm-hmm. and it was very easy for me to... Um, break my own promise to myself, which was after that experience, I said, I'm not doing that again. Oh, because of course I thought you had a prescription. No, right? <laughs> I did not. Okay. <laughs> um, and I, as a result, I was like, I, I'm not, I don't apparently have an addictive personality, but here I was, I found what apparently seemed to be the perfect drug for me. Mm-hmm. Right. And I was like, whew, that's too scary, too dangerous. I cannot revisit that again because I can definitely see that becoming a habit. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe not chemically, but certainly, you know, just positive rewards. Yeah. And so when it came time for the book, it was very easy for me to break that promise and be like, all right, you know, Adderall, we're back. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I found worked instead was this idea of working in partnership. Mm-hmm. So whether it's a co-author or it's just an accountability buddy, mm-hmm. or it's someone else who relies on you to bring it the way that Twyla Tharp has to bring it every morning at eight o'clock when she goes rehearse. Mm-hmm. That's what you need. And that's mm-hmm. different than just an accountability buddy that helps you go to the gym every day, right? Um, that's somebody that you're truly collaborating with who has some skin in the game, yeah. who if you don't show up for them, you know, you're not being a good friend or a good partner or whatever else. Um, something that really tugs at the core of who you are as a human being, that bailing on that, right? Um, and, and for some people, pressure like that maybe is, is the opposite of helpful. But for me, um, the pressure helped, but also the not being alone helped. Yeah. And when it comes to the creative process, I tend to revert to being alone with all things. Mm. Um, it wasn't until after... I wrote the book that I ended up having a friend of mine coach me with a speech once because I, te- I coach people on speeches. Mm-hmm. I coach Barbara Corcoran on her TED Talk. I have done a lot of that, and yet I had never allowed anybody to coach me because my creative process has always required isolation. Mm-hmm. And the biggest learning for me with the book was that I thought isolation worked for me, and it did allow me to produce a lot of things. Mm-hmm. But the way that I upped my game and got to the next level was by putting my big girl panties on and realizing that, I'm actually better in partnership. I think we all are, honestly. You know, as much as we have this, I would even call it a myth of the the creative genius working in solitude. Yep. You know, banging away at the keys. And it's part of what I think is fascinating about film. It's part of what is fascinating about books, even music, although I'm not a musician, you know, that it really is this collaborative effort. And when it works, <laughs> when it, 
when it comes together, it's really beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. So no, I, I love that. So how, so then inviting people to really consider how they can create even maybe a community, you yeah. know, or at least an accountability structure or something to help support them on this journey that can be so emotionally difficult. Yeah. Yeah. And in my case, right, it was me, my agent, my co-writer and 63 other souls. Yeah. <laughs> it was definitely a community. That's really cool. Yeah. Okay. So then on to this question of marketing and promotion and, uh, by the way, and I wish I remember who pointed this out to me and I don't right now, but I love this idea, you know, because I think for many creatives, there's a sense of selling out and I don't want to do that and mm. like all this, but of course we want our work to reach people and make a difference. And, and, and so the thing I forget who said was somebody pointed out that when you look at the cover of a New York times bestseller, it doesn't say New York times best writing author. It says New York times best selling author. Mm. Right. And, and so there's this, this concept of not only getting your work done, but now getting it out in front of people, getting them interested enough to read it and apply it and have it make the difference that it can. What have you learned about marketing and promoting your work that's made a difference? So I studied a lot of trajectories of books. Uh, not just for my book, but but for a number of friends and, and colleagues that I've worked uh, with on their books. And one of the things that I discovered, and, you know, the New York Times intentionally make the criteria opaque, mm -hmm. and the algorithm and the criteria changes all the time. But nonetheless, and I, I think I, I, I would stand by this um, because I, I did such deep work, um, what I found was, and maybe this goes back to your question, that the short answer to your, question, to your question is that when it comes to time to thinking about promoting and sort of exposing the work, right, um, to as many people as possible, what served me the most was being really clear, and this was the same thing with writing it, on who my audience was. Mm. And what I learned in studying the trajectory of a lot of other books is that the New York Times, like any big institution in this country doesn't value the exposure among anybody that they perceive to be not mainstream media, mm -hmm. which let's be really clear. Cause I will not use coded language, black media, Latino media. If you compare books by media impressions and I give you a book that had all of the normal, um, things that a book requires around book sales. Mm -hmm. But that isn't the only thing they require. It requires book sales, and then it requires a certain amount of media attention, right? Mm -hmm. If the media attention that book caught was, in terms of volume and just the math of it, was, let's use random numbers, 500,000, five, I should say 100 million, right? Mm -hmm. Or, you know, media impressions. And they were all from mainstream media, which is to say predominantly white media, the morning shows on the main networks and so on, then that formula of X amount of books sold with X amount of media impressions from mainstream white, predominantly white media will get you on the New York Times bestseller list. Mm -hmm. Now you take the equivalent sales of a book and then you couple it with a billion media impressions, twice as much, but they're from Univision, Telemundo, BET, mm -hmm. And that book will likely not make it on the New York Times bestseller list. Mm -hmm. So 
People can argue me with me with the numbers. Maybe the numbers have shifted. I looked at enough books and I looked under the hood of the promotion of a lot of these books. And I saw a lot of patterns that looked a lot like that. Mm. Which to me means that the New York Times bestseller list is interested in a certain kind of audience. And here I was writing a book about women entrepreneurs and especially women entrepreneurs who don't see themselves in most books, which is women of color. Mm -hmm. And so I made the decision that that way of promoting wasn't going to be what was for me. I was going to go the artist way route. I was going to go the long tail. You know, I did have a big first month and I did do the morning shows and Random House were incredibly supportive at making sure that that first month, which is so important, was successful. Mm But I wasn't going to quit my job and go on tour, mm-hmm. but by my job meaning my company. <laughs> right. Um, and I wasn't going to play to an audience where the viewers and the listeners and the, you know, the people who ultimately make those shows successful are not my target audience yeah. just to get this thing, right? Which right. might be more useful with another book on another topic. But, but I was really clear on what my true north was. Mm-hmm. And I made that commitment to random house as well. When I submitted the proposal, I said, I know who my target audience is. And guess what? I'm connected to people who are connected to them, right? From Nellie Galan, who's a dear friend who had a list of like half a million Latinas, who know, who are actively engaging with her and her newsletter and her videos and everything. Like you better believe that Nellie Galan was going to support me in this book. And we were going to do a two-part webinar series and we were going to do all sorts of things promoting to that list. And so I convinced random house that a, I knew my target audience and B, I knew how to reach them. Mm-hmm. And I didn't spell it out, but I made it very clear to them mm-hmm. that when it came time to prioritizing where I was going to spend my energy, which mm-hmm. press interviews I was going to do, which podcasts I was going to interview with, I made it really clear to them that I was going to prioritize the place where my audience already was. Mm-hmm. Um, and if forced to choose between that interview at Fox News mm-hmm. and that interview with BET, in a perfect world, you get to do both. Mm-hmm. And, you know more promotion is always better. But in a world where I have to choose between one or the other, let's be super clear. And I made it very clear to Random House that I would be choosing B. Mm-hmm. Even if B wasn't going to help get the book on the New York Times bestseller list, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and they were okay with that, I have to say, mm-hmm. um, which I kind of appreciated. Yeah. Um, at the end of the day, BET still sells books, right? Yeah. Um, and the fact that we have a dominant culture that doesn't appreciate black and brown media is not a problem that I'm going to, you know, tackle, but I am going to make sure that, you know, the next successful entrepreneurs do come from that community. And so I think that, you know, as, as easy as it is to get wooed by this idea of things like the New York Times bestseller list and other Mm -hmm. things Mm -hmm. that require that you do certain formulaic things, Mm -hmm. I would encourage creatives that are thinking about doing something like writing a book to a study the ecosystem much like I did figure out what price do you have to pay to get the accolades, the awards, the number ones, the whatever things that have been historically your measures of success. Mm -hmm. Make sure that you dissect what price you really have to pay to get those things and make sure that you're super comfortable paying that price. Mm -hmm. And if you are, God bless. Great. Um, Go get it. Um, get it done and and be satisfied with the work that you did because those are not easy things to accomplish and it's not to diminish them at all. Yeah. But if it turns out the price that you have to pay, A, isn't something you can stomach and B, doesn't actually serve your audience, there is a way, much like my book, that you can still thrive in this context 
but kind of doing it your own way. And the way to do that is obviously by still hacking the system. Like I'm still selling books. Yeah. Right. And the other thing that I did that I don't know, um, it's definitely not in the book, but it's in a lot of press that I've done is that proceeds of my book go to an organization called Vote Run Lead, which has gotten more women into elected office than any other organization in the country and specifically more women of color into elected office. They trained Stacey Abrams Hmm. and all sorts of other amazing women that we now know very well. And, you know, when I think about how I promote the book and when I think about staying up that extra hour, when I think about going that extra mile or, you know, making an effort to make time for press, it is very helpful for me to know that the salve for some of the nightmarish things that I see in the news every day mm-hmm. is perhaps another few books getting sold and another few women getting elected. Yeah. And there's now a direct correlation to that. And nobody, n- you know, that isn't something that had to happen by design. It's a connection that I made that anyone can make. Mm-hmm. Right. And if you need that, if you think, if you feel like I, I know I'm going to be tired after six months of, promoting a book and it's going to be tough to sustain and I'm going to need some extra motivation. Well, guess what? You know, for me a little bit, you know, more cash in the bank account was not going to be the motivation that was going to keep me going. Yeah. Um, Knowing every time that I look at the news that a lot of these problems will hopefully be solved by getting more women into elected office. That's what keeps me going. Yeah. I really admire that level of integrity, you know, and, and care about, you know, why you even wrote the book in the first place, mm. you know, and what you wanted it to do and remaining, you know, very clear about that all the way through, not only the creative process, but then after the fact as well. Right. I, th- I think that's really cool. I mean, part of it, you know, I, thank you for saying that. I don't know if it's integrity as much as it's like, it's like a productivity hack, right? Like it's how people say, you know, the alarm when it sounds on my phone is too easy to press the snooze button on, so I'm going to put it over by the mantle in the kitchen mm. <laughs> <laughs> because it's going to force me to have to get up out of the bed and turn it off, yeah. right? Is that integrity or is that hacking your own productivity? Like For me, <laughs> I knew that the chances of me still being interested in promoting the book six months, eight months, even a year in were pretty slim. I was mm. going to wane mm. after a while, but connecting it to something as meaningful and as powerful as getting women into elected office was going to be the the way that I created some sustainability, right? Yeah. No, that's smart. And that's that uh, advice, you know, know thyself, right? <laughs> what, what your life is about, what you really want. Yeah, know when you're lazy. Find ways <laughs> or, to hack it. <laughs> so you, you have, you're quoted in Tim Ferriss's four-hour work week, mm-hmm. yes? How did that happen? <laughs> that was random, right? Um, it happened because I complained. <laughs> a lot of things happened this way. Um, his, it wasn't really a complaint as much as I read his first version of four hour work week. And it had a section of, I don't know, a paragraph about outsourcing things to India. And at the time I was managing a company that we had acquired in India, 1600 people in Mumbai. I actually had an apartment north of Mumbai, um, that where I spent a lot of time in Pavai. And, um, I was intimately, you know, not as well as somebody who's from India, but I had, I was intimately familiar with the business of doing business in India. Mm. And I thought that he had come really short in that first version of the book at saying anything insightful. So when the next book was coming out, I don't know, I think I must have, I think we must know people in common, but somehow it came out that he was doing a little bit of crowdsourcing around certain topics. And so if you were an expert at certain things, please contribute. And I was like, hell yeah, I'm going to tell you a little bit about what it actually is like to outsource things to India. Um, Cause I, I just, I think I thought the first version really fell short of 
being as great as it could be. So I submitted my contribution, and then he incorporated it into the book and sent me a copy of the book and a thank you note. Wow, that's pretty cool. Yeah, it was just, it, I didn't get paid. It wasn't anything like that. It was just, um, you know, it was such a popular book, and I felt like there was something that could have been better, and I had an opportunity to do it. So That's great. Well, good. Well, that that brings me to the end of um, the questions I have for you. I just, uh, I suppose the last one, and I actually like to end, not that this was a coaching session, but I like to end my coaching sessions with this question. At some points. I mean, I got in touch with my shamanic, you know, tendencies, all sorts of interesting things. Revisited your intuition. (laughs) Exactly. Talked about your childhood experiences. Yeah. So we covered all that. Um, And this is a question that I've borrowed from uh, Michael Bunye-Stanger who oh, wrote The Coaching Habit. And he ends. Uh, he encourages people to end their coaching sessions with this question. What was most useful for you here today? We could, ref- we could expand that to include what was most enjoyable for you. This is about, for, I don't know how long this will be edited, probably not a lot shorter than it is now, but this is about a two-hour and 10-minute interview. Yeah. So I'm asking this question for those listening with the knowledge. This is about 130 minutes of conversation. So what was most useful or what was most enjoyable for you in this conversation today? I think that it takes a third party to sometimes see patterns that we are too close to our own experience to see. Mm. Um, And I think that that was probably the most enjoyable part is that um, I don't know that anybody has called me intuitive and I think that I walked away from (laughs) you. Thinking that I'm actually, you know, not that bad at it. Um, and I think that connecting those dots is always useful. And it's really helpful to kind of see that from another person's view. Um, and it also helps me understand how the book is landing, right? The fact that those are the things that you pulled out of the book um, is also telling. Um, and, you know, I've gotten a lot of men tell me that the book is not gendered and the advice is not gendered and that it could, it could really be useful to anyone under any circumstances. And I appreciate that. Um, but it's one thing to hear that said, and it's another thing to sort of see it in action. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> okay. Well, with that, we will conclude. And I thank you again for devoting so much time to spend with me and with anybody who's listening. I, I've enjoyed this conversation. I have too. Yeah, and I think people listening will enjoy it and I think they'll benefit from it. So, Good. so thank you. I hope they enjoy it nearly as much as I enjoyed it. Despite living in an age where we have more comforts and conveniences than ever before, life isn't working for many people. Whether it's in the developed world where we're dealing with depression, anxiety, addiction, divorce, jobs we hate, relationships that don't work, or people in the developing world who don't have access to clean water or sanitation or healthcare or education or who live in conflict zones. There's a lot of people on the planet that life isn't working very well for. If you're one of those people, I invite you to connect with me at goodliving.com. I've created Life's Best Practices Breakthrough Coaching to help you navigate the transitions that we all go through. Whether you've just graduated school, you're going through a divorce, you just got married, you're headed into retirement, you're starting a business, you just lost your job, whatever it is you're facing, I've developed a 36-week course that you go through with me and a community of achievers and seekers who are committed to improving their own lives and the lives of others. So through this online program, you will have the opportunity to go deep into every area of your life, explore life's big questions, create answers for yourself in community get clarity and accountability 
If that's something you're interested to learn about, I invite you to contact me directly at brian at briannmiller.com or by visiting goodliving.com. 